From CAFE and the Vox Media Podcast Network, welcome to Stay Tuned. I'm Preet Bharara. This coming term, the court will consider whether state legislatures have the power to make rules for voting in their states without regard to either the state constitution or the judiciary. That's a big thing. That's a whole new idea. That's Nina Totenberg. She's a legal affairs correspondent for NPR focused on the Supreme Court. Considered one of the founding mothers of the network, Totenberg has been a distinguished reporter there since 1975. Totenberg is widely known for her scoops. Most famously, she broke the 1991 story that a law professor named Anita Hill had accused then-Supreme Court nominee Clarence Thomas of repeated sexual harassment, leading to the well-known Senate Judiciary Committee hearings. A lesser-known fact about Totenberg is that she was close friends with the late Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And now she's out with a new book called Dinners with Ruth, a memoir on the power of friendships. It's about her relationship with the Justice and the other friendships that shaped her life and trailblazing career in journalism. I spoke with Totenberg for a live event at Temple Emanuel on September 15th. We discussed her new book, The Legacy of the Notorious RBG, and the conservative evolution of the Supreme Court. That's coming up. Stay tuned. Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Before I talk about some of the questions I've been getting, I want to note for the record, that's what lawyers do, that this week marks the fifth anniversary of Stay Tuned with Preet. It's been an amazing five years. I've been enormously gratified to have listeners who care and want to learn and guests who care and want to inform and the best team in the podcast business, led by executive producer Tamara Sepper. Stick around till the end of the show when we'll do some reminiscing. Thanks again for listening. So folks, as I record this on Wednesday afternoon, September 21st, it's about three hours after the state attorney general in New York, Letitia James, announced the filing of a sweeping civil lawsuit that many people have been anticipating against Donald Trump, Donald Trump Jr., Eric Trump, Ivanka Trump, Alan Weisselberg, various other people, and the Trump organizations 
and relatives of those Trump organizations. It was a long time coming, and it's pretty long in and of itself. It runs to about 220 pages. It's very, very detailed. It's very, very specific. And it seems very, very on point. What's the nature of the allegations? Well, as we've been talking about and as has been reported on for the last number of months, the investigation by the New York Attorney General's office has been focused on essentially a pattern and practice of the Trump Organization and its leaders falsely inflating assets, whether real estate or otherwise, for the purposes of getting benefits from the inflation, favorable bank loans, loan commitments, insurance agreements and arrangements. That, of course, is unlawful under New York law. Tish James called it a staggering fraud. And she lays out in detail, I think something like 200 examples of the inflation of assets done falsely. Now, to give you an example, one that I think we've heard before, but that's pretty eye-opening, there's an allegation that Trump had an apartment, a triplex apartment in New York City that he claimed was 30,000 square feet to inflate the value of that asset. It turns out it was only 11,000 square feet, which is demonstrably true based on documentation and I presume a tape measure. And there's example after example after example of that kind of lying and deceit, not just harmless exaggeration, that we know Trump and people in his family have been engaged in on the airwaves for years and years. These were statements made to financial institutions and other institutions through their accountants that turn out to be false. They're allegations, but they seem very strong. A few things to point out. This is not a criminal case. It's a civil case. No one, based on this matter alone, uh, is going to be separated from their liberty, Donald Trump included. But there's a catch to that, which I'll get to in a moment. What penalties are in the offing if the allegations are proven to a court or to a jury? Well, $250 million penalty, the debarment of the people named in the complaint from being able to conduct business or serve as an officer or director in the state of New York, or for a period of time from getting loans from financial institutions that operate in New York. So it's a substantial business penalty. It's a substantial financial penalty as well, but no jail. Now, why is this trouble for Donald Trump, even though they're just allegations? Well, as I said a moment ago, based on my fairly quick review, I haven't gone through every single line and word. It's a long document. It's pretty specific. It's not pled in generalities. There, if you look at the table of contents, each property has its own subsection. Trump Park Avenue, 40 Wall Street, Trump Tower, Seven Springs, Mar-a-Lago, the Rough and Joint Venture. It's very particular with respect to properties and assets that they claim were inflated. And there's documentation to show the inflation versus documentation to show the actual asset value. That's pretty easy for a court and for jurors to understand and hard to defend against. More importantly, and more devastatingly for Donald Trump, are the allegations that Trump himself was the one who authorized, if not all, many of these exaggerations of asset value. Literally in paragraph two of the complaint, the allegation is, quote, these acts of fraud and misrepresentation were similar in nature, were committed by upper management at the Trump Organization as part of a common endeavor for each annual statement and were approved, and this is the important part, and were approved at the highest levels of the Trump Organization, including by Mr. Trump himself. Indeed, Mr. Trump made known through Mr. Weisselberg that he wanted his net worth on the statements to increase. 
the complaint talks more about financial statements that purport to set forth Mr. Trump's personal net worth every year. And the complaint alleges each statement was personally certified as accurate by Mr. Trump, by one of his trustees, or in 2021, by Eric Trump. So there are specific allegations. There's a lot of them. And there's an allegation that they're specifically approved by Donald Trump, these misrepresentations. What else is significant in the fact that this is a civil matter? In a criminal case, as you all know by now, the invocation of your Fifth Amendment right against self-incrimination, your declination to testify to trial, can't be used against you. And jurors are admonished not to take that into account. Well, here, in connection with the Attorney General's investigation, as you may recall, both Mr. Trump and his CFO, Mr. Weisselberg, pled the Fifth Amendment rather than answer questions of any substance during lengthy depositions. The reporting is that Donald Trump, in a feat of great discipline that he doesn't ordinarily show when he has a microphone in front of him, pled the Fifth Amendment 440 times in connection with the investigation that culminates in this written complaint. What does that mean? Well, this is not a criminal case. So in a civil case, the government can ask the jury and the court to make an adverse inference based on the fact of the invocation of the Fifth Amendment privilege. So it is not proof direct that the answers would have been incriminating or the facts are, as have been alleged in the complaint, but it's a powerful argument that can be made to the jury and fully appropriately because it's a civil case. By the way, the standard of proof in a civil case is significantly lower than in a criminal case. It's not proof beyond a reasonable doubt, which is a very, very high burden, but just preponderance of the evidence, meaning it must be more likely than not to be true. And given the numerosity of allegations, I think it's going to be very, very hard for the Trump defendants to defeat each and every one of these allegations. The complaint also, by the way, goes out of its way to rebut potential defenses, including that these might have been mistakes, acts of negligence, forgivable omissions. Not so, say the allegations in the complaint, in part because it happened again and again and again and again. So the civil case is put together in what looks like a very meticulous manner. It's not good news for Donald Trump or his family insofar as he wants to keep doing business in the state of New York. Now, there's a footnote to all of this, literally a footnote. And you may have heard this reported upon. Footnote one takes this sort of interesting and unusual step of opining on whether or not the conduct that they have outlined in the civil complaint might also be the basis for federal criminal charges. Not her ambit, not her lane, but there's a footnote that sets forth that the allegations here also plausibly, that's from the footnote, plausibly violate federal criminal law, including the law against making false statements to financial institutions and bank fraud. And then she makes a fairly remarkable statement that everyone is reporting on, that the Office of the Attorney General is making a referral of its factual findings to the Office of the United States Attorney for the Southern District of New York, which I have a passing familiarity with. Now, what does that mean? Well, it's not clear. Referrals happen all the time. They come from private citizens. They sometimes come from judges. They sometimes come from other agencies or local prosecutor's offices. No U.S. attorney's office, including SDNY, is obligated to take them up. It's also true that they don't have to wait for a referral. Some of these allegations about bank fraud and allegations of bank fraud and misstatement and exaggeration of assets and property values by the Trumps have been reported on for a long time. We've been talking about it here on the podcast as well. So it is possible that the SDNY has already been looking at these allegations, or it's possible they made some decision based on a preliminary investigation or based on the facts as they know it, not to do that or to wait for a referral. We just don't know. 
There's no magic to this footnote in this complaint, except insofar as what James is indicating is that they have a whole file of stuff that has not been requested previously or was requested and refused by the Southern District of New York and is now being transmitted. And we don't know what the nature of that information is, how detailed it is, but certainly it's going to be more detailed than the very detailed as it is allegations are in this complaint. So the bottom line is, as a civil matter, Trump and the organization, I think, are in a significant amount of trouble. I think they will have very significant difficulty in defending against all this. On the criminal side, I think it's far too early to tell if there is interest or indeed activity on the part of the U.S. Attorney's Office for the Southern District of New York, looking at these very same allegations. Stay tuned. We'll be right back with my conversation with Nina Totenberg. Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. Your body is your own. That's why Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Today, lawmakers who oppose abortion are challenging Planned Parenthood. Affordable, high-quality basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. Planned Parenthood believes that health care is a basic human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies. They also work tirelessly to oppose the onslaught of new policies aimed at interfering with personal decisions best left to patients and their doctors. They won't give up, and they won't back down. You can join Planned Parenthood in the fight to help make sure that the next generation can decide their own futures. The organization needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Support for Stay Tuned comes from Squarespace. In this day and age, if you're starting a new project, one of the first things on your to-do list is creating a website. That might seem a bit scary at first, especially if you've never done it before. But there are tools out there that make it easy for anyone to create their own site, like Squarespace. Squarespace is an all-in-one platform that you can use to build a website and help people find your ventures. Creating a website with Squarespace is straightforward and painless, even if it's your first time making one. Whether you want to sell your products or a service, or need a place to host your blog or portfolio, Squarespace can help you get your name out there and makes it easy to find on the web. They have plenty of tools to help make your website look pretty great, too, all while customizing it to fit your particular needs. Because your site is your own, and it shouldn't be fit into a one-size-fits-all box. Get the functionality and the unique look that you need. Head to squarespace.com tuned to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain using code TUNED. There's no doubt the Supreme Court has moved dramatically to the right. Now that Roe v. Wade has been overturned, many wonder if other currently protected civil rights could come next. NPR's Nina Totenberg has been covering the court for almost five decades and has seen it through many changes. She joined me live at Temple Emanuel in New York City to discuss her new book, Dinners with Ruth. Hello, everyone. It's a lively crowd. Um, Nina, it's great to see you. It's great to see you, too. This is going to be a very easy interview. 
because I'm a big fan, I will not ask the kinds of hard questions that you sometimes ask people, because we're, we're among friends. Um, I, you know, I was thinking in preparing for this, I think the last time I saw you in person was, I think, four years ago, almost exactly four years ago, at Columbia University, when you were interviewing on stage a certain Supreme Court justice, Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Mm -hmm. I don't know if there was a dinner afterwards, but I was not invited to that dinner. <laughs> there was. <laughs> I think it was an almost entirely female audience part in the, in the after, after event. So congratulations on the book, which is why we're here. Dinners with Ruth, a memoir on the power of friendships. So let's start with the first word of the title of the book, Dinners, uh, which relates to the last word of the subtitle, Friendships. How important is food in friendship? Listen, we're all Jews here. It's important. <laughs> we're not all, not all of us. <laughs> it's important. I mean, you, when you sit down for dinner with somebody and, and it's not a catered event, you've made the dinner at your own home, and in my case, I'm lucky enough to be married to uh, the wonderful Dr. David Rines, um, who I've, this week, as this book has come out, I've taken to referring to him as Prince, formerly known as David. Um, but he's my prince, and he is a fabulous cook. And so my job is sous chef and entertainer. And when you sit down with people for a meal, in your home, it makes a huge difference. You can become friends. You can let a lot of the sort of social pretenses that people adopt to shield who they are and become genuine friends. And I think that that's been enormously important in my personal and professional life. So for people who don't know the arc of your friendship with the Ruth of Dinners with Ruth, you first got to know her almost or more than 50 years ago before she was a household name and before you were a household name. Very true. We were young women. She was in her late 30s, I think, and I was in my early to mid-20s. And I had been assigned to cover the Supreme Court. And I frankly didn't know what I was doing, and I was trying to learn everything I could. And there was a case before the court called Reed versus Reed, and I opened the brief. It was a sex discrimination case, and I really didn't understand it. And I flipped to the front to see who had written it, and it was a professor at Rutgers named Ruth Bader Ginsburg, and her telephone was there, her telephone number, and I called her. And I was, she gave me like an hour-long lecture with me asking questions, and then I started calling her more frequently. Ultimately, she won that case, and the Supreme Court, for the first time, said that women are uh, covered by the 14th Amendment guarantee to equal protection of the law. And it was the first time the court had said that. In fact, it had said quite the contrary many times before. So it was a very big deal. But as over time, we became first professional friends and then personal friends after she moved to Washington to become a Court of Appeals judge. How long from the first time meeting her did you have a meal with her? I'm not quite sure. I, 
I have a really vivid recollection, and I don't think I talked about this in the book, um, of Emile. I was at an American Bar Association meeting, and she was also. And my sister, and it was in Atlanta, and my sister Amy, who is now a federal judge,、um, was practicing civil rights law in Atlanta and around Georgia. And the three of us had dinner together. And I have a very wonderful sort of feeling, almost, about that dinner. But I can't tell you what we talked about. Because don't you don't, rem- oh, you don't, don't remember. remember. <laughs> okay. It's not like I won't tell you. I can't. I don't. I don't remember. So, I just have this kind of wonderful feeling that we laughed a lot. We had a good time. Did Did you feel, given your line of work and the fact that that line of work was covering the court of which she was a member for many years, that you had to keep on the down low a little bit the closeness of your relationship? It was. You know. It was really. It's hard to believe this, but it's true that it's much easier when you have a friend who's a judge than when you have a friend who's a politician, <laughs> because there are rules for judges. They're not supposed to talk about any pending case, and they don't, by and large. I I've never had any judge or justice talk to me about business that was before him or her, not when they were. Still considering it, I have sometimes had conversation with judges long after, especially when they've retired, and I was able to ask them why they did what they did, why they voted the way they voted, or I might say that I was surprised by how they voted, and I often was.、Um, and but that's different than when they're when you're an active sitting judge and there's a case before you. If you ask a question about what went on behind the scenes, or what's going to be the outcome, or what did you think, what are you thinking about this, you will lose a friend because that person will drop you like a hotcake. And so, and so, you say in the book that you got no scoops from Justice Ginsburg、yeah. other than ice cream, I suppose. <laughs> but, but no, no. Did, did you?、Um, Maybe I, sh- I don't, shouldn't ask it this way, but I understand how that person wouldn't give you any. Did you, at the beginning of the professional relationship, try to get a scoop from Justice Ginsburg? No, but every once in a while she would give an interview to somebody else and tell that person something that I wish she had told me. Oh, I know what you're talking about. And I would say, Ruth, I would say this to myself, Ruth, you're my friend. Why did you tell that to Joan Biskupic and not me? And If anything, it probably was because I didn't ask. So there's an. Ex- I don't know if this is what you're referring to specifically, or there, there are multiple things. But in 2016,、uh, then Justice Ginsburg said some critical things in the campaign about then candidate Donald Trump, which she walked back. Sometime later, I think you say very candidly in the book was a mistake. She admitted it was a mistake. Do you wish she had told that to you? Um, I do wish she had told it to me because I'm a reporter and I would have liked to have had the scoop, and I would have. There would have been other people, so I wouldn't. But she asked me not to ask her about it, and I just said I can't. I mean, I had a long scheduled interview with her, the week after she said those things, and a matter of days after she had apologized for saying those things, and so I, 
I said to her, Ruth, I can't do that. That's my job. And she understood that. I, you know, it just popped out of her mouth was sort of the way I felt about it. Please don't ask me about that. And I said, I, you know I can't do that. I have to ask you about it. And um, if you want to, you can ream me out. And she did. She, she said, I followed up. You know, she, she said what she had said. And I said, but I asked some follow-up question, which you're supposed to do if it doesn't make sense. What, if you're sorry you said it, why did you see it, say it? And why are you sorry? Da, da, da. And I asked some follow-up question. And she got very testy with me. Can you remind people what it was that she said? She said some very, very critical things about candidate Trump. And she didn't just do it once. She did it three times with three different reporters. And I, I, I really never understood why she did that, because it clearly was a violation of the ethical rules that she's supposed to follow. And she was a very ethical person. She just didn't, I think she was just appalled. And she felt strongly. Shut up. <laughs> she felt strongly. She felt very strong. And by the way, she never took those statements back. She just said she regretted saying them. Yes, that's exactly right. <laughs> Allowed. Allowed. But and, you're allowed to think of anything you want. But you're not really supposed to say those things when you're a judge, even so, if you think them. And you're actually not supposed to say them if you're a reporter either. So she was your friend. There have been other Supreme Court justices who have been your friend. And you've interviewed people of whom you are fond. Mm -hmm. And that probably presents its own issues largely um, that you can overcome, as you've described. Have you ever interviewed people, I'm sure this is true, who you deeply dislike? And does that affect your interviewing? I have interviewed people that I... And, and will you name them, please? No. <laughs> no. I won't name them because I, it's not a question of personal dislike. I mean, in the era we live in right now, people behave so badly that it's easy to say, that's really inappropriate. Um, and I, I have no, I'm an equal opportunity person about this. We've had Brett Kavanaugh to our house for dinner and to parties, and I make very clear at a big party, I do not want anybody to misbehave at all. That he's there as my, my friend. Do you make sure there's plenty of beer? <laughs> well. Because you're a good host, I'm, I imagine. Yes, my husband is a very, my husband, the first time that Brett came to the house, I think, not for dinner, for, it was a big party. Um, David said, what, what, Mr. Justice, what can I get for you? And he said, beer, of course. <laughs> Did he scream it and, and stomp his... No. No? Okay. No. But I, I, I feel very strongly about this, that I have had many friends in the course of time who have done very wonderful things for me and through whom I've gotten to know um, a lot uh, and who've been very generous with their time and... Um, and their friendship. And I don't personally agree with many of them, but that is beside the point. For most, I don't have any friends that I think are bad people. 
I'm just, I'm processing that. Um, you have said about Justice Ginsburg, who had three fights with cancer, who had shingles, who was extraordinarily brave, and a, uh, you know, spearheaded lots of things for women in this country. But you used a particular phrase in the book that, I, that struck me. You said some, and she's very stoic, obviously. And you said sometimes she demonstrated a foolish grit. What did you mean by that? Well, when she had shingles, she just figured she would, she didn't really have an internist at the time. So she just, she didn't know what it was. She knew it hurt like hell. And she figured she would just work through it. And after two weeks, she finally went over to see the doctor at the Capitol, who even the doctor at the Capitol knew that was shingles when he took a look at it. And my husband said to me at the time, I'm really worried about this when he found out about it because she didn't do anything about it for so long. She, there's some, a phenomenon in which the blisters go away, but the pain does not. And that's what happened. And so it was foolish grit to try to work her way, work through. I mean, you, if you look at it, I, thank, please, God, I've never had shingles, and I've taken the shots. And she went around preaching to everyone to get shingle shots after that. Um, but, it, you know, sometimes it's just a little stupid to, be, to have, demonstrate that much grit. You don't have to soldier through everything without consulting somebody who knows something about it. Yeah. Can we talk about a substantive aspect of Justice Ginsburg's career in writing and teaching and judging that was brought you know, back to the fore when a couple of months ago, the Supreme Court, we'll talk a little bit more about this, when the Supreme Court overturned, overruled Roe v. Wade in a case called Dobbs, and lots and lots of people like to point to Justice Ginsburg's writings before she became a judge and a Supreme Court justice, <clears throat> being critical of the foundation for that reproductive right in Roe. And Justice Alito, in his majority opinion overruling Roe, makes reference to Justice Ginsburg's you know, longstanding criticism of the sort of legal, philosophical, and ethical foundation of a woman's right to choose that she thought should more fully be grounded in the, in the right to liberty, not just privacy. Is there something to set straight here with respect to how yeah. Justice Ginsburg felt about that? I mean, I think that? it's interesting. I, I ran into one of her former law clerks after the leak, but before Dobbs was released. And I said... Was it them? <laughs> no. no. And it was it's somebody who had clerked for her. And, she, and I said, she would be, um, I think I said batshit, uh, <laughs> if she saw that. She would never say anything, but I knew. This is one of the virtues of knowing somebody well. Even if they don't say anything, you can see when they're angry. But they would have been angry about the leak or about the decision <clears throat> or about both? She would have been appalled by the leak. Yeah. But she would have been angry about her work being... I think she would have thought it was completely misconstrued because she did think that Roe, the, the privacy basis, although she supported the right to privacy, was not adequate. She thought the court went too far too fast. And, you know, she actually had a case in front of the Supreme Court. And I talk about this in the book 
at the same time that Roe was there. But it was, she was right. It was, a, would have been a much better case. She represented Susan Strzok, who was a captain in the Air Force. And this was a classic, I always say, Ruthian strategy. Make sure that people see everything from every angle. And she represented Captain Strzok, who did not want to comply with the Air Force's requirement that if she got pregnant, which she did, she either had to be discharged or have an abortion. And the abortion was performed, they were usually performed uh, on a foreign military base. And she got somebody to adopt her child and she did want, not want to be discharged. And she lost in the lower courts because this was a military rule. And, um, but they, I think they, they they stayed her discharge, and the case, Ruth took it to the Supreme Court, and the court agreed to review it the same year that it accepted Roe, except that the Solicitor General looked around and decided, the government decided it was probably going to lose this case, and they were going to cave and change the rule, which they did. So there was no more case. But it would have, her notion was, if you have the right to autonomy as a woman over your own bodily integrity and whether you have a child or not, you have the same right to have the child as you have to not have the child. And that was best illustrated in this case. And it, 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 it was her, I think, <clears throat> perhaps her largest personal regret as a lawyer that that case died, withered on the vine that year. That was not the one. Do you think if she had been alive when Dobbs was decided, she would have taken Justice Alito's citation of her and Dobbs as a personal affront? Yes. Do you think she would have tried to persuade him not to do that? Well, I'm sure that some, somebody would have. But that's sort of one of the curious things is that first drafts, even very complete drafts that are circulated, often have language in, in them that is eliminated to um, sort of sand down the rough edges. That didn't happen here. It did not happen Do you here. think that didn't happen here because of the nature of the reasoning and the issue or because of the leak? I think probably because of the leak because people, I'm sure some people on the court did not want to have it said that because of the leak that was taken out. Right, so... Some people hypothesize that the culprit behind the leak was someone on the conservative side for that very reason, so that Alito and others wouldn't lose their nerve either with respect to their vote or with respect to the rhetoric they used to support their vote. Is that your theory? It's my, pretty much my theory. It is your I think, theory. I think, I think it is the same. I think most of us who cover the court now have reached that conclusion. Do you have a suspect? No. <laughs> if, if now, you could, look. Preet, <laughs> you were the U.S. attorney for a very long time. I wasn't assigned to this matter. No, but you had leaks from time to time. And I don't know if you ever had an investigation, but the, how, how, what would you say the ratio is of investigations that actually are able to pinpoint the leaker? So that's interesting you say that because... One of the reasons why leak investigations are not ultimately successful in any context is because of the belief, uh, supported by many, many courts, 
that confidential sources are sacrosanct and should not be revealed. And you had occasion to be at the center of a gigantic controversy. So I wanted you to compare those two things. And you talk about this at some length in the book, and it's a very interesting part of the book. And that is, you're coming into possession of information back in 1991 about Anita Hill and the allegations that she had made to others that came to the Senate Judiciary Committee about Clarence Thomas's conduct towards her. And there was a leak investigation of which you were a focus because you broke the story on NPR and you had to hire counsel and you had to be subjected to questioning. Does that experience and your role as a reporter affect how you think about the Dobbs leak? Well, I would have to say that the Dobbs leak is probably the only time in my professional career that I've been scooped and glad it wasn't me who got the the scoop. Because if I did, I would have absolutely done exactly what Politico did. I would have spent my time making sure it was accurate and that this wasn't somebody trying to pull a trick of some kind. And I would have um, reported the story. But I do think that whoever did it did something very unethical and very damaging to the institution of the court. And because I've covered the court for many decades and greatly respect it as an institution and think it did do great damage, um, I'm glad it wasn't me. But, but However, you, but you if it were done me, it. I would not tell. <laughs> but, but if you had come into possession of the Dobbs opinion, you would have published it. Yes. Notwithstanding the damage it would have done to the court. Explain that to a layperson. Well, um, the whole idea of being a reporter is, you know, would I... This is not hard. This is my view that it's damaging to the institution, and I can even write a story that says that, but um, I've come into... if If I had gotten that information, so would somebody else have. And um, it is indicative of the state of the court that it got out and probably got out because um, somebody on the conservative side, and that's not, I don't mean a justice, and I don't necessarily even mean a law clerk, thought they could affect the process by um, leaking an entire uh, draft opinion. So that has nothing to do, the only kind of story that I think anybody could ever get me to hold back on would be something where I thought people might die, a national security story. But other than that, and I would go to my bosses and I would have that conversation. But other than that, if it's a valid story, if it's good information, I'm not the person to decide whether the public should know this or not know this. And I think it's, you know, that's that's part of my job. And it doesn't matter if the leak accomplishes some public service or not. Not particularly, no. I mean, I I would also say, you know, in the case of of Anita Hill, I actually noticed something. I noticed something very weird that, prompted me to go looking for what was going on. And that led me to finding out that there was this woman named Anita Hill and that she'd made these allegations. And 
it's not like somebody just dropped a document on my desk. Somebody, I think, pretty clearly did do that in this case. So you think with respect to the leak of the Dobbs opinion, it is very unlikely we'll ever find out who it is? Well, um, I, I take it from something that the Chief Justice and that Justice Gorsuch said recently, that the court will have some sort of a report soon as to what they've been able to ascertain, if anything, about the source of the leak. But I'm not sure the rest of us are going to know. Oh, so you think if the court, in its investigation, is able to identify the person who leaked it... Oh, I think that, if they're able to identify the person right. who leaked it, we'll know. We'll know. And if because they don't that will know, also they, be leaked. And if they don't find out... They'll say it's, a, it's an ongoing investigation, which it is as far as they're concerned, except nothing much will be happening. Do you think that investigation is as full as it should be and has all the resources it needs based on your sources? I actually don't know. Um, I think that it's very, they're in an impossible position. It's even worse than if it's a Justice Department leak because, after all, they're a separate branch of government. They don't want the FBI prying into their business and questioning their clerks. So I, don't, I know that a lot of the law clerks lawyered up because they didn't know how this investigation was going to be conducted, whether their, all of their telephone material, would, telephones would have to be dumped, etc. And you can reach erroneous conclusions that way. But just remember this, you, you know, every, I talk to a lot of people who do leak investigations at, at the Justice Department, and I asked, and they said it's the most thankless task. It's always impossible, really very difficult. So they, you, something very valuable is some piece of information is compromised. They come, it's referred to DOJ. Only three or four people were in the room when this was discussed. That's the way it starts. <laughs> And then, well, who else knew? Nobody else knew. Well, what about so-and-so? And so? Pretty soon it's a cast of 50, then it's a cast of 100. Now, add to that fact the, the fact that this happened at a time when people were largely still not entirely working at the court. So law clerks very often live in group homes. There are three or four of them live together in a townhouse on Capitol Hill, and they're working at home. And other people come into that house. And the same is true of justices. They're all working at home. Their spouses are working at home. Their children, if they have any, are working at home. Um, it exponentially gets bigger and bigger as you think about it. Right, but, but I know who knows, the political reporter. And the political reporter cannot be made to tell. Well, the political reporter could, if they decided to have a criminal investigation, but that's pretty hard. There's no law here that was broken. Yeah. Do you think it was Ginny Thomas? <laughs> the record will reflect you took a sip of water. <laughs> you can ask the question, but I have no basis upon which to answer it. <laughs> I have no basis upon which to answer. Okay. Um, let's, let's take a, a step back and talk about the arc of the court that you've been covering for a long time, a number of decades. And lots of things are different than they used to be. Um, off the top of my head, I think it's acknowledged that the court, Supreme Court, 
is, according to polls, less respected than it used to be. It seems to be less chummy than it used to be. It's viewed as more political than it used to be. In some ways, it's less diverse in terms of backgrounds. Almost all of them have served on the bench. That didn't used to be true, as you point out in the book. In some ways, it's more diverse. There are women on the court, uh, unlike when you began covering it. Um, the confirmation process has changed very dramatically. Those are just a few things that I think are different. Given your perspective on covering the court over so long a period of time, what have I left out, or of the things that I mentioned, what's significant and important to the country with respect to the, the change in the arc of the court? There's no center. I've never covered a court that has nobody, much less often two, three people who are sort of in the center ideologically on the court. And there are six members of the court, five of whom are so much more conservative that they prevail, they can, and do prevail often, I shouldn't say often, occasionally, without the vote of the Chief Justice. Um, this is a court that is more conservative than any court, I think, perhaps in 90 years. But more serious is the fact that any five of them can prevail without needing an, a sixth vote. And they're likely to get the sixth vote most of the time. Is Justice Roberts happy? <laughs> Does he have friends on the court? I don't think any of them are happy at the moment. I mean, I It's a pretty know, great gig. I don't know who was here when Elena Kagan spoke earlier this week, but I think she... Did she seem happy? Uh, okay. I don't think she's real happy. I don't think any of them are real happy. And the only person who might be happy because she has no history yet and has had no frustrations yet is Ketanji Brown-Jackson. Oh, <laughs> That's the honeymoon. It's like going to be a pretty short honeymoon. Is it important? To, I, I hadn't thought of this. Is it important for the country, for the Supreme Court justices to be happy and satisfied in their jobs? Well, it's better than the alternative, that's for sure. I mean, there are many, I mean, I don't know. Is Mitch, McCon is Mitch famous, McConnell happy? There are many famous relationships on the court between very famous justices, Justices Black and Frankfurt are really loathed each other for ideological reasons. Um, but, and, and Frankfurter definitely, I think, exacerbated things, probably. Um, at one point, they were known in the 40s, I think, as nine scorpions in a bottle. Um, but, and I would say that they may not be scorpions, but they're, they might be. <laughs> is, is part of the reason they're unhappy that... Uh, their privacy has been invaded in the view of some of them because there's strong feelings about some of these decisions? And or are they unhappy because of one of the things that I mentioned, that their popularity is on the wane, the feelings of politics in the court are on the rise, or does that not matter? I think that some of them think that politics are on the rise on the court and that, look, the, I have liberal friends who say to me, how can you cover this court? And it's, the answer is very simple. It's a great story, but it is a very significant story. And the court is taking a dramatic 
really dramatic turn to the right. And it's not just abortion. It's the whole regulatory state. It's uh, a kind of, and some, some people would say, weaponizing of the First Amendment. It's um, making it more difficult, actually, back to enforce white-collar criminal law. That, uh, yes, that is true. And, and easier to prosecute other kinds of criminal law. Um, so you're not talking about one or two cases. We're talking, you know, this coming term, the court will consider whether state legislatures have the power to make rules for voting in their states without regard to either the state constitution or the judiciary. That's a big thing. That's a whole new idea that has not ever... No, if you'd ask anybody on the court 10 years ago, does this have a chance, even in the more modest version of it? The answer would have been no. Is affirmative action going to soon be a thing of the past in higher education? Probably. That case is coming up. Um, the Indian Child Welfare Act, which was one of those um, pieces of legislation enacted to sort of atone to Native Americans for all the awful things that have been done to them throughout our history, but which governs, among other things, uh, adoptions with great preferences for Indians, um, is now also potentially on the chopping block. I mean, it's, it's pretty, from one end to the other, it's, it's a very... As I said, I think this is the most conservative court that certainly that I've ever covered, and I'm not this old, but going back to the early 30s. We'll be right back with more of my conversation with Nina Totenberg after this. That guy means business. Just an amazing player. No, not him, the sports photographer behind him. Uh, what? He has a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where he earns 5% annual percentage yield, so he's scoring big on and off the field. You might even say he's the MVB. MVB? The most valuable business. Making your money work harder. That's how you business differently. Intuit QuickBooks. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes are in APY. APY can change at any time. Support for this podcast comes from Constant Contact. If you're a business owner, you already know that it's really, really hard to cut through the noise of everyday life. If you want to connect with your customers, you need to break through the noise. You need Constant Contact. Constant Contact is a marketing platform that makes it easy to reach new audiences, grow your customer list, and connect over email, text, social media, and more. Whether you're a marketing guru or just learning the ropes, Constant Contact offers writing assistance tools and automation features that make it simple to say the right thing at the right time. So get going and start growing your business today with a free trial at ConstantContact.com. Just go to ConstantContact.com right now. Constant Contact, helping the small stand tall. ConstantContact.com. So it's one category that I think we didn't mention that people have been talking about and worried about, and it's 
in the area of privacy, and they think Roe is just the first step mm-hmm. to an elimination of or a reduction of rights, including uh, same-sex marriage and, and interracial marriage and access to birth control. Are the people who are worried about that overstating the, the risk? They may be slightly overstating the risk. However, the, other, the, the yin of this yang is that at the same time that the court has, in that sense, at least put a question mark over individual rights, um, it has greatly enhanced religious rights. Uh, and so that, I mean, would you have thought, I mean, there, that the right to discriminate based on uh, gender or um, being gay or lesbian or trans. Um, so if you, if you maintain the right to marry, which I think the court will not disturb, it's, it's too chaotic. But then you say, but people can discriminate against you in public services. I think a fair question, at least, is what have you accomplished? You've done, a, um, you've done something to equalize gay rights in one sense, at the same time that you take them away in another sense, even in a state that may have a civil rights law that covers gender questions. You said a minute ago that one of the things that strikes you about the court is it no longer has a center. What's the process by which we get a center back? (laughs) I probably won't live to see it. Um, uh, (laughs) I mean, you'd have to have the membership of the court change. I, I really do think the idea of adding justices is, as I say this today, I still think this is a dream of a torn off head, as my mother used to say. <laughs> and, what does that and, mean? And it, is, it means that it's a dream that has no reality. Um, but it is certainly um, a proposition that some people are raising a great deal of money on. And there are things that have happened in terms of court membership that I would not have predicted um, and would have, in fact, probably resisted if you'd asked me about them 20 years ago. Well, is one of those things the prevention of Merrick Garland from getting a vote? Yes. Preceding the rushing yes. of Amy Coney Barrett on the court? That, that would have been yeah. one of them. Um, and, and how big a deal has that been to public perception of the court? Well, I don't think in the end, I think the public thought it was wrong, but it didn't affect their view of the court. It might have affected their view of Mitch McConnell, but that was irrelevant in a national election. Um, So I don't think it had an enormous effect. By the time the Democrats figured out that they should have been working on this for years, because the Republicans had been working on it for years, it was too late. And Donald Trump got three nominees and basically 
um, outsourced it to the Federalist Society, at least the screening process. Incredibly politically smart, yes? Incredible. I don't know if it's smart. Well, it he was, won. It was, he won. It was smart um, from that point of view, but it was not, I think, a patriotic thing to do. Well, I have, I have views on no, Donald Trump's I'm patriotism. No, I'm serious. You're suppo- when you're the president, you're supposed to do that, not some other organization. So I think if a Democrat said to the AFL-CIO, give me your list and it'll be my list, I think that would be equally unpatriotic. You mentioned um, Brett Kavanaugh earlier. We talked about Anita Hill earlier. And I have a general question about what you think of the confirmation process. But in particular, given that you were around for Anita Hill, uh, Clarence Thomas confirmation hearing, and were central to that in a number of ways because you broke the story, and in your capacity observing the allegations against Justice Kavanaugh and the investigation that took place there, are there, describe what the parallels are between those two and the differences. Well... Um, I do think there are some important differences. One involved um, allegations against a person who was alleged to have um, systematically sexually harassed somebody who worked for him when he had a job of considerable power in the federal government. The other involved an allegation that a guy, when he was 17 or 18 years old, and probably drunk, um, sexually molested um, a woman who came forward. Um, and I, I, as a personal matter, I just, I don't, you know, there, wa- there were corroborating witnesses for Anita Hill. Um, there were character witnesses for then Judge Thomas. But there, I mean, there can't be a corroborating witness against that kind of an allegation. So it's hard to say you can attest to somebody's character, but you can't say I was there and this never happened. Um, But I I don't think they're the same. I do think that having somebody, a judge, lose his temper on the witness stand is never a good thing, but you never know what's going on behind the scenes. You don't know if that's the price of keep n- having your nomination not withdrawn. Um, you, and I've, I have no idea about that. Ruth Marcus wrote a wonderful book about the whole thing. And, the, but, and I think her, I asked her this question. Did she think that Kavanaugh blew his stack in a very unjudge-like way um, because... He had to, that's what he was told, or because he wanted to. And she said to me, a little of both. A little of both. A, not a very satisfying answer, I grant you. But I want to make a larger point. I have thought for years, in the old days, when you used to work for Chuck Schumer on the Judiciary Committee, and you were the kid in the, sitting up there sneering at me. Um, I didn't and, sneer. No. Um, <laughs> He sneered. The committee, the committee at one point, I think in the 80s and even 90s, there were members of the committee, Republican and Democrat, 
who certainly on lower court nominees worked together when they thought somebody was not qualified or shouldn't be a judge. And, and it was a good thing. And it worked episodically, but it worked. But gradually, the committees got so that they only had political staff doing judicial screening. They don't have a joint group of people who have some investigative background who could be doing, you know, the FBI is not perfect. I've proved that more than once. Um, I can find out things that they didn't find out. And, the, and a, a genuinely nonpartisan staff on the Judiciary Committee could do that. But that, is, that ship, I fear, has sailed. And so I don't know how to fix this process. It's really broken, and I don't have a, a good answer. It is, and neither do I. You say something in your book about the friendships and the relationships, and you make a point that I think is applicable to judging and also applicable to reporting. And you say, quote, objectivity and fairness are not the same thing. Nobody is purely objective. It is not possible. Justice Powell was shaped by what he had seen in World War II and by the personal devastation of his, younger messenger, of his young messenger in Richmond, and you're talking about some other thing that's in the, in the book. Talk about objectivity and fairness and what we get wrong about that. Well, it's ridiculous to think that I don't have personal opinions. I try as hard as I can to have them not in my pieces. But what I can do is, I think, promise fairness. And it gets, I have to say, harder and harder when people don't trust reporters to try to do that. And they'll say, oh, you're just part of the lame street media, and we don't want to talk to you. And I, that makes my job only more difficult. And it makes my pieces um, way less good. The cases that come to the Supreme Court generally are not easy. And the public should understand that they're not easy and why they're not easy and what the tension is between what you just would like to have happen as a policy matter and what the precedents are and what the reactions might be that you haven't thought of. Um, I remember once, it's a one, this is a wonderful story, I don't think I tell in the book. My late husband was Floyd Haskell and he was a senator from Colorado for one term. And he had been a Republican all his life who changed to being a Democrat over the Vietnam War. Um, but his expertise was in taxes and he was on the Senate Finance Committee. And there was something called the Haskell Amendment. It was a, something tax law. I have no idea what it was. And the U.S. Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia decided the case of what the meaning of the Haskell Amendment was. And I brought the opinion and the dissent home to him. I believe that Pat Wald wrote the majority and then Judge Scalia wrote the dissent. And 
he sat down to read it. And he said, um, after he read the majority, he said, sounds about right. And then he read the dissent, he said, that sounds about right, too. <laughs> There's a current controversy, I don't know if you've expressed a view, and that is on the, the question of whether or not Justice Thomas should recuse himself from matters relating to January 6th because of the activities and the communications of his wife, Ginny. A, do you have a view? B, is, is your understanding of the court such that does John Roberts or someone else say, you know, hey, Clarence, maybe think about recusing, or does everyone stay out of each other's business on those kinds of issues? Well, those are two separate things. Yes. Um, for years, when Ginny Thomas would do things, I would call up very prominent ethics professors, um, Steve Gillers at NYU, people like that, um, and, and to, um, to a person. They always said, look, I know it, it's unseemly. I'll grant you it's unseemly. But under the code of ethics, um, a spouse has the right to express his or her views, has the right to have a, a, a career that may not fit with somebody's idea of what they should be doing. But it's not a violation of the code of ethics. I would say that January 6th and the events leading up to it Broke, broke that to use a metaphor, chain of custody. So that all those same people who I called said, I, I finally reached the breaking point. Um, if she's going to do this, he should recuse. She shouldn't do it. But if she's going to, then he should recuse. The question of whether other members of the court will say something to Justice Thomas is on my part, pure surmise. But I would surmise that at some point the Chief Justice has had this conversation. But the Chief Justice is powerless to order anything. It can. Yeah. Each Justice is a person unto himself. Yeah. I mean, Chief Justice is the first among, equal, among equals, but he has no power to make anybody do anything. Nina Totenberg, thank you. Thank you for Congratulations on the book. My conversation with Nina Totenberg continues for members of the Cafe Insider community. To try out the membership for just $1 for a month, head to cafe.com slash insider. Again, that's cafe.com slash insider. Hey folks, this week marks the five-year anniversary of Stay Tuned. Five years. It's hard to believe. To celebrate the anniversary, I asked you folks for a little help. I put out a call a few weeks ago for listener voicemails reacting to the five-year anniversary of the show, and you delivered. I was completely blown away by the responses we got from all over the world. Hi, Preet. Jeffrey Banks calling from Bangkok, Thailand. Hi, this is Marie Pierce. I'm calling from Birmingham, Michigan. Good morning, Preet. This is Ginger Rothmeyer calling from Lincoln, Nebraska. Hey, Preet. This is Emma from Japan. Hey, Preet. This is Jonathan from New York. Hi, Preet. My name's Christy. I'm calling from Dallas, Texas. 
The country and the world looked a lot different in September 2017. Donald Trump was still in office. No one on earth had yet heard of COVID-19. In March of that year, I was fired from my job as U.S. Attorney for the Southern District of New York. As spring turned to summer, it felt like each day brought a barrage of important and often painful and confusing news. So it was in that context that we launched the show to help make sense of the changes and the challenges facing the country and our lives, but also to highlight the efforts of the folks working to make it better. And over the years, we've had so many brilliant guests. Here are some of your favorites. I wanted to share that the morning of the election in 2020 was especially poignant for me. You talked about how the uneasy, anxious feeling that we all had was really just democracy at work and that our uncertain elections are a hallmark of the American experiment. And although democracy is messy, we have to let it work. My favorite show or episode was the cast system. It really gave me a lot to think about and to pause and to listen and be empathetic with concepts that growing up as a white girl in the Midwest, I will never understand or live myself. But to hear the experience of Isabel Wilkerson was um, astounding. I still recall when you quoted one of my all-time favorite workout songs by Bruce Springsteen in a sad but all-true prediction about the former president. That song was Badlands, and the line was, Old man want to be rich, rich man want to be king, and a king ain't satisfied till he rules everything. I was 18 when 9-11 happened and, of course, had a huge impact on me like a lot of Americans. Your episode explaining why the court case kind of evolved how it did in military court versus civilian court, sort of how things were handled, answered a lot of questions I've had over the years. Interestingly, some of you had the same favorite guest. My favorite episode is uh, the one with the first time you interviewed Bill Browder and learning about what happened to him in Russia and, and learning about his uh, learning about uh, Sergei Magnitsky and how the Magnitsky Act came into being. Bill Browder. Bill Browder. Bill Browder. Bill Browder. Bill Browder. I really have to say the episode with Bill Browder has to be the one that stands out in my mind. Some of you shared more than just your favorite moments from the show. It was incredible to hear how Stay Tuned has impacted you over the years. I just wanted to say that I've been a listener from the very beginning, and you got me through the Trump years, which was amazing and a huge blessing for me to make it through and by listening to your show and finding out that there's other people that think like I do. I want you to know that it is very important to me that you continue your podcast because having a granddaughter, I need to know that there's a future for her. As a retired high school journalism teacher, I'm appreciative of Preet's meticulous preparation for each interview. Uh, the overall quality, the questions that Preet asks his guests are evidence of this free interview diligence. The thing I appreciate the most about your podcast isn't a particular guest or episode, although there have been many great ones of both. It's the consistently civil and reasonable tone of your comments and the discourse with your guests. You refuse to participate in the outrage machine, and it is so helpful and so good for my mental health. And as our community of listeners has grown, so has our team of cafe hosts. 
It's been a privilege to learn from them, and it sounds like you all are fans as well. Before Trump became the candidate and the nominee for president, I was never registered to vote. I never cared about politics. I was never interested. I felt like it was somewhat above my pay grade. But when he became the nominee, I, I felt that it was my duty as an American to get involved and to understand politics and how somebody like him would be the chosen <laughs> uh, candidate to become president. The interview that you had with Heather Cox Richardson and her being a political historian, uh, it really helped to open my eyes. And ever since uh, immersing myself more into the culture, I am now at a position where I listen to her regularly on her um, Now and Then podcast with Joanne Freeman. Free Judy Kelly here. I'm an Oregonian, a widow nearing 80. I have been with you since almost the beginning. You, Joyce Vance, and Heather Cox Richardson are my most trusted and appreciated sources for news. It's always great to experience the skills and talents of our hosts and guests. And more rarely, we get the pleasure of doing the same for our listeners. One listener in particular, whose name is Rebecca, sent us this original song. That might have to compete to be our new theme song. But in all seriousness, I have to say, I am truly so filled with gratitude and thanks. Looking back at the last half decade making this show, none of it would have been possible without your support, feedback, questions, thoughts, and most importantly, the commitment to a better democracy and a better world. Thank you for joining me and the rest of the CAFE team on this incredible journey. There's more to come. So, as always, Stay tuned. Well, that's it for this episode of Stay Tuned. Thanks again to my guest, Nina Totenberg. If you like what we do, rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. Send me your questions about news, politics, and justice. Tweet them to me at Preet Bharara with the hashtag AskPreet, or you can call and leave me a message at 669-247-7338. That's 669-24-PREET. Or you can send an email to letters at cafe.com. Stay Tuned is presented by CAFE and the Vox Media Podcast Network. The executive producer is Tamara Sepper. The technical director is David Tattashore. The senior producers are Adam Waller and Matthew Billy. The CAFE team is David Curlander, 
Sam Ozerstaden, Noah Azulai, Nat Wiener, Jake Kaplan, Sean Walsh, Namata Shah, and Claudia Hernandez. Our music is by Andrew Dost. I'm your host, Preet Bharara. Stay tuned. <laughs>